Chinese government propaganda and disinformation is becoming increasingly sophisticated. It's evolving beyond the clunky state media reporting and Twitter bombardments. This assessment lies at the heart of Aspie's latest report, Frontier Influences, the New Face of China's Propaganda. The report looks at YouTube influences from Xinjiang, Tibet and Inner Mongolia who purport to be authentic but are in fact producing Chinese Communist Party messages with powerful professional backing. David Rowe speaks to Daria Impionbato and Fergus Ryan about the key findings from the report. Hello everyone, I'm David Rowe and I'm joined today by the authors of this report, Fergus Ryan and Daria Impionbato. Thanks for coming on the podcast, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Daria, let's start with you and perhaps with a quick snapshot of what you found. Tell us about these influencers, who are they and uh, what are the messages that they're conveying? Sure. So we collected 18 accounts of these frontier influencers. Uh, we screened out all of those that we found that belong to the non-Han ethnic majority in China to focus on the ethnic minorities. So we have influencers from Xinjiang, Tibet, Inner Mongolia, uh, who are Uyghur, Kazakh, Tibetan, uh, and so forth. Um, and then we watched 100 of their latest videos for a total of over 1,700 videos. And what we found is a lot of videos about nature and travel and just sort of you know, these influencers talking about their personal experience of these regions, uh, but then insidiously hidden among all of this content were more um, either implicit or explicit propaganda messages that these influencers, influencers are pushing out uh, for the Chinese party state. So on the one hand, you've got portrayals of Xinjiang and the other frontier regions that are clearly at odds with what we know through reliable media reporting and the UN port, among others. Uh, but on top of that, direct propaganda to push back on those assertions sort of woven into the to the videos. Yeah, so the portrayals are of often very pristine and secular images of these frontier regions where ethnic minorities are happily living in ethnic harmony. Um, so th that's the image that they're trying to portray even with those less explicit uh, videos. But then we'll have the, those videos where the influencers will go out and directly push back on uh, the accusations of human rights abuses that are happening in Xinjiang and that have been corroborated over the years and most recently by the United Nations Human Rights Commission as well. Now, most of um, the listeners will, of course, be familiar with the, the reporting on this, but just paint a picture for us of what the reality is. What do we know about what has happened in Xinjiang and these other regions? So both here at ASPI, but also many other research and organizations around the world and the Uyghur community uh, around the world, they have been reporting now for many, many years of the Chinese government's crackdowns over, uh, especially over Turkic ethnic minorities in Xinjiang. The main framework used by the Chinese government over the years has been counter-terrorism. So framing uh, these minorities as terrorist groups, uh, but in reality, the crackdown was over the wider population that has been, uh, you know, surveilled on and uh, there have been millions of arbitrary detentions and uh, obviously the more recent accusations of forced labour that have tainted a lot of the production chains uh, linked to China. Fergus, tell us about the mechanisms through which these videos are made and distributed 
Who is giving the influencers their funding and the production support? So most of the influencers that we looked at work through these special agencies uh, that are referred to as MCNs, which stands for multi-channel networks. And that enables the influencers to really churn out a lot of content. Um, the content looks very authentic. It's, you know, slightly unpolished. It has a very authentic feel about it. But in fact, because they have this support from the agencies, it's what is referred to in the industry as a professional user-generated content. So that just means that they have the resources and the backing behind them to churn out as much of this, you know, quote-unquote positive content about Xinjiang and other frontier regions in China. Um, the content is initially aimed at a domestic audience. So it's uh, published originally to domestic video platforms in China. And that is just one reason why the content that, it, that comes out of this process toes the Chinese Communist Party line. It's simply not possible to create any content that goes against any of the political red lines in China for that to be published on domestic um, video platforms. So that's one level of, of censorship that this content has to go through. Um, and that's what happens before it ends up on YouTube, where uh, it is targeted at a more global audience. But on top of that, the MCNs have relationships with the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party, correct? That's right. So in the report, we look at uh, one company in particular called Xiaowu, Xiaowu Brothers, I believe it's called. And all we had to do was go to their website and their WeChat account to see uh, the evidence of internal co Chinese Communist Party meetings that they have. Um, the tagline um, for the company that is on their website uh, explicitly links their commercial motivation for creating these videos with a national propaganda mission. And when you read the posts that they put out on WeChat about these internal CCP meetings, they're talking constantly about the need to be telling China's story well, i.e. pushing Chinese propaganda out into the world, and the requirement that any influences that they employ should be politically reliable. So all of these people that we examined are um, very heavily vetted. In fact, in one case, you were able to establish a, a, a directive or a direction given by uh, the Chinese government to an influencer or to the company with regard to specific content. Is that right? So we look at one um, case study about a, a set of accounts called Story of Xinjiang by Guli. Um, and these accounts popped up on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and elsewhere, all platforms that are blocked in China, I might add. And the influencers on this account presented themselves as two Uyghur sisters uh, who were uh, creating content that painted a very rosy picture of what's happening in Xinjiang and included quite a lot of content that was very combatively pushing back against uh, credible reports about human rights abuses in the region. And so we dug deeper into this case and we found the agency that they were working for. 
uh, and we show in the report how this agency works pretty much hand in glove with officials in Xinjiang. In fact, in one case, they actually turned a Xinjiang official, just an, an ordinary woman bureaucrat, into an internet influencer herself. So she has close to a million followers on Douyin, which is the Chinese um, version of, of TikTok. So this company does a, a lot of work with uh, Xinjiang propaganda agencies. And as we outline in the report, within this particular case study, that's very highly likely the case. Um, that's what was happening with, with these two young women as well. Right, right. And um, just explain to us how the MCNs also allow them to get around what would normally be a block on uh, monetizing their, their content given that YouTube is effectively prohibited in China. Yes. Well, because YouTube is blocked in China, that should mean that uh, individuals based in China are not able to monetize their content on YouTube. That ordinarily would be the case. But via MCNs and other companies that have a relationship with YouTube and agreements set in place with YouTube, they're able to effectively use a loophole uh, where they are able to monetize their, their content. And so that's, that's quite a troubling situation because as we watched lots of these videos, we saw ads pop up, uh, which demonstrates that they clearly are making money from them. And so that effectively means that platforms like YouTube are subsidizing the creation of this propaganda. Bit of a problem. Daria, just explain how this is a different approach from what we've seen before when it comes to Chinese propaganda and disinformation. How is this an evolution? So I think the main difference lays um, it, between what we have observed up until now is that uh, it is really becoming way harder uh, from the outside to pinpoint the relationship between these propaganda workers and the party state. So even for the, the tech companies and external institutions, it is hard to draw those links without this type of contextual research that we have been doing. Um, and that is quite worrying because the audiences don't have that context. If, if the audience sees a party state media affiliated account publishing, you know, a video about the beauties of Xinjiang, it sends one message, but another message is sent if a Uyghur woman is speaking in first person about her personal experience and there is no apparent link between this person and the Chinese party state. So it has the potential to be way more um, effective in conveying those messages. But also in contrast to the sort of staid, and I think you describe it as didactic in the report, um, the normal sort of st approach of state media, which is very sort of very straight, not very engaging, or just the sort of sheer bombardment by, by volume, Yes, it's, it's a, a repetition of the same yeah. talking points over and over again that don't necessarily stick. And even though some state media accounts have a huge following overseas, the interactions with their posts are actually not that great. Whereas these accounts um, tend to become really, really popular. Their videos are liked by people. They they show you know some beautiful scenery and food and, and all things that are quite popular with audiences all over the world. So they do really have the potential to become um, viral. And yet that's also interestingly aligned with 
uh, I suppose, the portrayal of China overall that's, um, uh, that's been promoted by Xi Jinping himself, isn't it? I mean, beyond just the um, pushing back on propaganda or the rosy portrayal of Xinjiang itself, there's also that alignment with the sort of beautiful China that, that is being projected to the world. It's not only beautiful, but also approachable, lovable and respectable image of China that is reflected, you know, a lot of most of our influencers are young women and they portray themselves with this, you know, very feminine and docile persona uh, that is, you know, it, it, it kind of checks out with what the central directives uh, initiated by Xi Jinping that have trickled down throughout the propaganda apparatus uh, say they would like to to see. I found it really fascinating the, um, the way you discussed the portrayal of interethnic marriage, uh, for example. And now obviously, you know, interethnic ethnic marriage is not something that one would want to object to being portrayed uh, in any way, but there's a dark twist to it in this case, isn't there? Just talk us through that. Yes, absolutely. Well, firstly, I would like to start with the implication of those types of policies. So for for a long time, the CCP has had uh, many different assimilationist policies in these regions, especially Xinjiang, where a majority of people actually belongs to ethnic minorities. So they are the majority there, <laughs> to be precise. Um, Uyghurs, but not, not just um, Uyghurs. So in many instances, there have been coercive measures to get especially Uyghur women to marry Han men. And a lot of the influencers we've seen promote these types of marriages in in a more light way. So saying that it's actually fine for ethnic minority women to marry Han men and this is how you can uh, hit on one or, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. this, uh, if you would like to date a Uyghur woman, this is what you should say, this type of content. Um, and also it is concerning if then you look at reports by Human Rights Watch, for example, of um, women who and uh, or people who have been detained for opposing um, these types of marriages of or for sp speaking ill about the party's policies um, who ended up in, in camps. But but it doesn't promote, for instance, the idea of Uyghur men marrying Han women. Uh, is that right? Because in that case, t typically the the man would. Uh, sorry, the, 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 the woman would adopt the, uh, the man's culture. Yes, well, uh, we only found, I think 90% of the instances we found about that, yes, about 90% of the instances we found of mentions of ethnic intermarriage, uh, it would be about a minority woman marrying a Han man. And there is sort of a cult cultural acceptance in China that the woman is the one marrying into the man's uh, ethnicity. Um, only a few mentions of the other way around. Fergus, perhaps you can uh, wrap us up um, just by talking us through the recommendations. What, do you, what have you found that we should be doing about this? For a start, we think that in addition to social media platforms and video sharing platforms like YouTube, labelling uh, state-linked or state-controlled media accounts or government officials, media workers and the like, this practice should be broadened out to include these types of influences, particularly if they have 
uh, if they work for an MCN that has uh, very close links to the the party state and says publicly that what they are doing is propaganda. And secondly, we think that the loophole that I referred to earlier whereby MCNs and other companies are able to ensure that influencers like this can monetize their content, we think that that should come to an end. It's fair enough that this content can be posted onto uh, platforms like YouTube, but we think a line should be drawn somewhere and that line should be they shouldn't be able to monetize that content because, as I said earlier, it effectively means that they're subsidizing the creation of, of Chinese propaganda. And you would kind of hope that platforms would not, <laughs> would not want to be um, used in that way anyway, wouldn't you? Exactly. Any other recommendations? We also call for uh, governments, social media platforms and civil society groups to support further research into this area. Uh, because we have seen some great research on this this topic coming from Brookings, for example, who showed how if, if you go to YouTube and other platforms and search for terms like Xinjiang, Chinese state media comes up a lot. But we need further research that shows what happens when you add in other types of content creators like these frontier influencers, how much does their content being churned out and flooding these platforms, how much does that increase the overall amount of state-backed propaganda on these platforms? All right, guys, it's a terrific report. Um, I commend it to our audience. You can find it uh, on uh, the ASPE website, www.aspe.org.au. Strongly encourage you to check it out. Guys, thanks for talking to us. Thanks Thanks so much. You've been listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast with me, Olivia Nelson. We'll be back with another episode soon.